0: Good evening, everyone. And thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Peter McCormick. Peter, who describes himself as the Elizabeth Warren of Bitcoin, is a journalist who hosts one of the most popular cryptocurrency podcasts in the world, What Bitcoin Did. If you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Peter, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, man. Good, good to good to see you. Good to speak to you.
0: Yeah, you're still in Texas, right?
1: I am, man. Yeah. Well, I leave in the morning. I'm heading off to New York tomorrow morning, and then heading out uh, back to the UK. I've been away for a couple of months, so I need to get back.
0: How, how do you like Texas, man? I
1: love Texas. I, I like it. Uh, I don't think it's perfect. <laughs> right. I think there's a yeah. You know, I, I think it's why I like Austin because Austin has uh, that kind of progressive side surrounded by. The very conservative uh, kind of texas ideas but i like it man i could live here i like the people Uh, i like the attitudes i was fortunate enough to be invited to governor abbott's house and oh wow he was yeah it was in well the mansion so and it was incredible to hear him talk he was talking about opening up to bitcoin miners and being open for business that they will never uh, tax your income it just feels like it's progressive but in a different way Uh, like economically progressive uh, which i think some people struggle with i, th- I think uh, progressive ideas tend to be things that come from the left but i i think it's economically progressive because it's trying to uh it's trying to enable businesses and uh trying to provide an environment for businesses to be able to function and grow and yeah super impressive uh I've uh, shot some guns, which is interesting. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not very good. I get a lot of criticism. I don't hold the gun right, and I don't stand right. But uh, I, I have enjoyed learning about guns and gun safety, which is cool. Uh, the food's amazing. Yeah, I love it here, man. It's a cool place.
0: Have you ever shot a gun before? You're from the UK, right? Your gun laws are famously strict.
1: Yeah, only once in the UK. I shot a shotgun when I was clay pigeon shooting. And I have shot guns once in uh, Raleigh in uh a place called Durham near Raleigh once, which was cool. And did it at a gun range, which to me is interesting because it it was almost like going bowling in that you had yeah. your lanes yeah. and you had families <laughs> and people on their own and couples all just going and yeah you know, having their lane and going. it's like going bowling uh, but except you're shooting guns. Uh, I think the big thing for me was you don't ever. You don't ever fully appreciate the power of a gun from the TV. No. You have to hold it. Yeah, you have to hold it and you have to shoot it to fully appreciate the power. And, you know, when I when I both times when I've shot guns in the US, I was really taken back by how powerful they are. And I I really understood the, the threat of the weapon in my hands. Right. Uh, and it made me respect it more, made me really understand the importance of gun safety. I, I often get asked, because a lot of Bitcoin is a very pro-gun culture. Right. It's guns, and guns, Bitcoin, and uh, private property rights, yada, yada. Yeah, and the, yeah. they, they always say like the UK is backwards and we should have uh, something like the Second Amendment because we don't have any protection if we have a tyrannical government. And, you know, often they'll bring up what's happening in Australia at the moment. And I fully understand the point. Um, And it's really interesting. If I was in Texas, I wouldn't ever want to change the laws. Not that I should, but I never would want to. And I would probably, I expect I'd end up owning a couple of guns. Actually, I'm one of those people who gets addicted to things. So I'd probably buy one and end up with like (laughs) 30. But if uh, in the UK, I I don't want guns introduced and I understand all the arguments for it, but I just don't want guns introduced because uh, outside of the debate around defense against a tyrannical Mm -hmm. government, I think guns are a negative to society, um, personally. Uh, if people want guns for sport, there's ways of doing, you know, in the UK you can acquire guns for sport and there are very strict regulations about it, but I don't think we have the society that would benefit from having an open gun culture.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you have that argument, right? So I think a lot of the, the impact... Of guns on a society depends a lot on the underlying you know, cultural expectations of that society. So, in places where there's lots of violence, you, you almost don't have a choice. Like, you either have that or, or the bad guys have that. But if you're in a place that's relatively peaceful, like I lived in South Korea for a couple of years, and people would just send their four year old kids off to, you know, take the elevator to the 10th floor and go to the pharmacy and come back, down, like nobody was worried or cared about that at all. And I, and I don't think that in a society like that, you know, an open gun culture is necessarily a net positive. I, I agree with you as far as that goes yeah cool man where are you based we are in Colorado I am actually in a suburb of Denver oh yeah I love Denver I love yeah?
1: Colorado uh spent a bit of time up in Boulder Oh yeah. uh, which a beautiful place man
0: it's the Austin of Colorado I'd say
1: yeah the, you know what there's a there's three places that really stand out to me in the U.S. uh I love Austin yeah uh, and then Boulder both I've been to yep. many times previously I just went to uh Nashville oh Nashville's yeah Nashville's yeah, great city, man. Great people, great food again, great culture. Uh, I went to a whiskey jam and uh, I left the country culture. Really loved it in Nashville.
0: Yeah, I have not made it out to Nashville. I've got family in Kentucky and Georgia and kind of all over the the south and the the southeast and that that whole part of the United States, but I've never made it out to Nashville.
1: Well, I would recommend it, dude. It's a it's a great great city.
0: Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you some questions about podcasting, which is not normally where I start, but since we're both podcasters, okay. uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the journey you've taken from being a, a journalist to being the host of the largest Bitcoin-themed podcast in the world.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's all an accident, really. N- none of this was planned Uh <laughs> If you go back, I mean, go back eight years ago, I was uh, I was just recently married, and I worked in advertising in London. I had an advertising agency uh, focused on the digital side. We built websites and email campaigns, social media campaigns. Got people at the top of Google. Right. That was my career, and I got divorced, and uh, it was it was quite a hard breakup. And I ended up not going to work properly for a year. I was just not in a great place, and. eventually the company within 18 months of my divorce folded. So uh, at the time my mom was sick, she, uh, she was dying from cancer. So I took a year off work um, and just kind of got myself back together, spent time with mom. And during that period, I came across big, well, two things happened. I came across Bitcoin, but I was also, uh, I'd I'd done a year of being a vegan because my mom, she had cancer. She went vegan. So I did it with her. And, um, Which was cool. It was a a really great experience for me. I'm I'm not vegan now, but I I would do it again. Uh, But as part of being a vegan and running all the time, I ended up discovering a podcast by a guy called Rich Roll, who's like a vegan ultra athlete. I
0: just read his book. uh, What's it called? Finding Ultra. Finding Ultra. That's it. Yeah. I I read that a a couple of months back. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I was I would go for these runs. I would go out and run for an hour, two hours every day. Really, really good for me. And um, I ended up Googling and and didn't go to his website. I ended up on this second website, and he was hosting a retreat about a week later in Italy. It was like a running and yoga retreat. His wife would do the yoga. He would do the running. And I was like, you know what? I, I think I should go to this. By the way, this has been a theme of uh, of everything I've done for the last four years is constantly do things when I see it. Just go for it. So I was like, right, I think I'm going to go. So I called them up, and they said they had one space left. So I thought that was like a signal. Take the slot, go go away, go, go to this retreat, and hung out with Rich and got on really well with him. And he said, look, if you're ever in Los Angeles, look me up. So I, I got back to the UK. I was like, fuck it. And I booked a flight and went out there, and I was like, hi, I'm, I'm here. <laughs>
0: and
1: uh, I was hanging out with him, and I just said to him, I said, Rich, I – I don't want to go back to working in advertising. I I hate it. I'd I'd had a Jerry Maguire moment where I'd written everything that was wrong with the industry and kind of quit. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I said, I really like your life. Your, Your job is to sit down and talk to people for an hour or two hours a day. And I want to do that. It seems amazing. You get to meet these amazing people and travel the world. I want to do it. And he said, well... Listen, a lot of people say this to me. (laughs) This is what you do. And he sent me off to the Pat Flynn course, which is, yeah, how to, yeah, you know the one, how to create a podcast. So I watched that. I ordered all the equipment that day, delivered to my friend's house in Venice. Um, And then I reached out to somebody in the Bitcoin community who was in LA. I said, do you want to do an interview? I'm going to launch a podcast. he said, yes. And that was, uh, we're coming up to four years ago. That was, I think, November the 17th, 2017. So I recorded that first interview. I uh, did another one about a week later. And then I didn't do anything for a, a couple of months, really. And uh, and then I started up again. And uh, and ever since then, I, I haven't missed a week. It's been four years now. And yeah, you know, complete accident, dude. Nothing. Uh, I didn't set out to be a journalist. I didn't set out to be a podcaster. I just did one. And here I am, you know, four years later talking to you about it.
0: Yeah. Now you're the the Elizabeth Warren of Bitcoin.
1: Oh, man. Fuck, Jesus. Mark Cuban. I, <laughs> do, do you know what? I was thinking about it at the time. I was thinking, why did he... Yeah, just for the listeners' sake, uh, I was in a Twitter debate with Mark Cuban and another podcaster called Preston Pierscher, a very successful podcaster. And, uh, you know, we were criticizing his thoughts on Bitcoin and Doge. And then Preston managed to get him into a uh, spaces, so like a Twitter spaces, which I joined. And I made a point i said to him i think one of the reasons you perhaps don't care enough about bitcoin is i don't think you need to you're a multi-billionaire right and and it's look it was a provocative point but i, I was like you're a multi-billionaire whatever happens to the economy you're still going to be rich you're still going to be have assets you're still going to be able to buy buy anything you want you can wake up every day and buy anything you want kind of that was kind of the point i was making uh, and he took that you know, as, as a, a massive insult told me to go fuck myself and called me the elizabeth warren of Bitcoin at the time, I was like, huh, and I think I, I think I know why. Because Elizabeth Warren has this thing against billionaires, like, yeah, you know, or some of the Democrats do anyway. I mean, we've got Janet Yellen coming out with this proposed tax on unrealized yeah, gains. Yeah. It's like a and really, it's a punishment against billionaires. I think that's what he was alluding to, but that wasn't the point I was making. It's like I'm glad you're rich. Like, stay rich, be a billionaire, do whatever you want. But my point is, I think you don't have to worry about money like other people. Like I worry about money. I worry about, will I have enough for the future to put my kids through college and what happens if a currency collapses? What am I going to do about that? We do have high inflation right now. I mean, I'm in a fine position compared to most, but there are a lot of people who aren't. There are people out in El Salvador right now who it's a dollarized nation. And as the U.S. continues to print dollars and the currency inflates, there's no, there's no benefit to the people of El Salvador. They don't receive stimulus checks. And, and this opportunity they've been given since President Bukele made Bitcoin legal tender is an opportunity for them to be able to save money in an asset that doesn't get debased. Uh, and I just think Mark Cuba misses that point. And perhaps he misses it because he doesn't have to get it, or perhaps because maybe even a Bitcoin-based economy is a threat to his own uh, you know, personal well-being. And who knows if he's benefited from the printing of dollars we talk about the cantillion effect and yeah. perhaps that's been a benefit to him I, I don't know but i think that's why he called me the elizabeth warren of bitcoin and it was a surreal day
0: so so he just thought that you had this animus against people who've been you know financially successful and, and therefore you're kind of sneering at him
1: yeah and it wasn't it, it was more i was making a different point that i just think he you know some people said i i accused him of being out of touch and i guess i kind of was accused of him of being out of touch and it seems like i pissed him off but you know i'm I'm not here to uh, massage the egos of uh, anyone. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to fix money here, and that's a very important issue and, and never been more important than right now as we see massive inflation across the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's actually several things that I want to follow up with. Uh, we, we can circle back to El Salvador. But I in doing research for this interview, I was reading one of the transcripts to um, – I don't have the episode number, but you, you had a panel. It was recently, right? You had four or five people on who, who didn't agree about uh, whether or not... I think it was a crypto Bitcoin versus crypto war, that episode. And yeah. you said something about uh, Bitcoin having won the war on money, and you're a Bitcoin maximalist. And I wanted to ask a couple of questions about that. Uh, first of all, it's... Um, why are you so bullish on Bitcoin as against other forms of cryptocurrencies? I mean, is it just a first mover effect? Bitcoin was was the first, it's the one that has the most buy-in, and has. it's the one that has the most thriving ecosystem, or do you think there are technical reasons underlying it that make it superior to all the altcoins, Ethereum, or anything that plausibly would come in the future?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, so let's, there's two ways of looking at it. There's looking at Bitcoin versus traditional currencies, gold and fiat. And then there's Bitcoin versus uh, other cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin versus gold and say fiat currencies, fiat currencies being the dollar, the pound, the euro. Um, There's a really great article that was written by a friend of mine called Vijay Boyapati. It's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. And he talks about why Bitcoin will be the dominant form of money. And he does a really good of comparing it to fiat currencies and gold. And that article more than anything crystallized for me at a point that Bitcoin is the best form of money. And a lot of people who aren't in Bitcoin, we call them no coiners. I think they struggle with this because we're so used to having you know, dollars or pounds in our pocket and then being relatively stable uh, in you know, developed Western economies that we feel like they're backed by the government. We feel like the government backs this, but the government doesn't really back anything. They just have an economic value and that economic value changes on based on government decisions um and we tend to like gold because it's tangible like we can hold gold in our hands or we right. make things out of it it has an industrial use so when this new bitcoin thing came along this decentralized form of currency with all these complicated terms like blockchain and cryptography and hashing i think it's a lot for people to fully understand and and essentially take that leap into what it is uh, but most people who do, most people who go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole soon realize, no, this is the best form of money, and, and that's why they they care about it. And it's because of some very unique, unique properties, which I can answer now, we can come back to. But primarily, is that it's fixed to a limit of 21 million coins. The monetary policy is that plus an issuance rate, which halves every four years. Um, it is censorship resistant, so I can send it to you. Nobody can stop me doing that. Plus, I can hold it. I can. It's a bearer instrument, so I can hold the asset, and I can take it with me anywhere in the world. And there's other things, but you soon realize oh, this is a this best form of money. And the reason it's the best form of money is that when you have a form of money which is fixed, like Bitcoin, it makes you think about every purchase. You know, should whether you're somebody in El Salvador thinking like, should I buy that can of Coke or that beer, or you're us maybe in a developed nation thinking, I, I want a new car. You have to make a choice because there's most likely scenarios that in four years' time that Bitcoin will be worth a lot more in value because supply and demand, with regards to currencies in play, and as more people adopt it, it becomes scarce. So this idea of a scarce money changes the game in an economy. It makes you really think about what you're going to buy and when, whereas if you're in a fiat-based economy where the government is printing dollars or pounds and we're an inflation rates quoted at around 5%, but actually it's probably much higher if you count rent or property prices in. You have an incentive, therefore, to spend the money. And if the incentive yeah. is to spend the money, then the incentive is not to create the best products. It's not to create a stable economy. It actually creates an economy which is fundamentally based in credit. And credit eventually has to be repaid. If credit, if there's a lot of debt in the economy, that can lead to a crash. So there's a l- number of reasons why people f- prefer Bitcoin. But then, once you got to the point of Bitcoin, other people will say, "Well, what about these other cryptocurrencies?" And the reason Bitcoin, for me, wins or has won the race of cryptocurrencies, is not because of what most people think it is. So, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's uniqueness comes down to the fact it is decentralized. And again, so for what your listeners, for your listeners, what this means is, Bitcoin is a blockchain, and every block in the blockchain has all the transactions. You, as a Bitcoin user, can download a node, and I can download a node, and that has a complete copy of the blockchain. And what happens is every 10 minutes when a new block is created, that propagates around the world. So you download the new block, and I download the new block, and we all reach consensus on what's in that block. The way that happens, and the way that can happen, is that the block size needs to be kept small. That's that's one of the most important parts of it. And the reason it needs to be kept small is because of the... Uh, hardware devices you can use to create a node. You know, Currently the Bitcoin blockchain, I haven't looked for a while, but let's say it's around 300 gigabytes. This laptop here, I can download it on. So I can run a node and you can get a Raspberry Pi and a hardware device, which allows you to do that. Now let's look at something different. Let's look at Ethereum. Ethereum has very fast block times with lots of smart contracts, and lots of data moving around. That blockchain, I don't even know how big that is. I'm gonna guess it's, uh, if you have something like the ethereum blockchain that's going to be well over a terabyte in data right now and it's the speed at which it is growing means it's very difficult for someone to run a node most of the nodes now are run in data centers uh, and it might be even that those one terabyte ones are pruned nodes and like a full archival node is multi uh multi terabyte so what that means is that when china switched off Bitcoin. They banned Bitcoin. The Bitcoin network didn't stop because people all around the world were hosting nodes, and it's, so it's very resistant to a state attack. If the government wanted to switch off Bitcoin, they can't go into every home in the world that's got a Bitcoin node and switch it off. Whereas something like Ethereum, which has a huge amount of data, is hosted in data centers. If there was a coordinated state attack, I think it would be very easy to go to an Amazon data center and say, "You need to turn that off." It, there's also a number of other issues that come with it, so. When we talk about technical, people think that, oh, well, this blockchain is faster or the fees are lower and they think that makes it better, but they've made a compromise on decentralization and a compromise on security. With Bitcoin, it hasn't made those compromises. So I actually think it's technically better by being technically conservative. I think the best technical and economic minds have worked on this and realized this isn't a race to create the fastest blockchain or the lowest fee blockchain, it's to create the most secure and most decentralized blockchain. And that's what's been achieved with Bitcoin, but there's another factor that comes into place: first mover advantage. But add to that that we have this kind of mysterious, unknown creator. Yeah. This yeah. mythology around Satoshi Nakamoto who created Bitcoin. It gives it this like unique origin story, this immaculate creation of this new monetary system that nobody knows where it came from, but works almost perfectly and and that matters a lot
0: right i mean human beings being storytelling animals like that sort of mythical starting point really does make it stand out psychologically i think
1: yeah i i think that's really helpful to the bitcoin story but in the end it's kind of like where are you going to put your money you got to put your money always in the places that you trust the most and for me it's there's nothing that comes close to bitcoin the story itself is compelling the technology is compelling the people who are working on it's compelling it's the blockchain which has it's the cryptocurrency which tesla has put some of their reserve in it's the cryptocurrency that squares put reserve in. it's the cryptocurrency that el salvador make legal tender it has the network effect it is going to continue to grow so yeah so it's a long Complicated answer to what would seem like a simple question, but it's an important question. And I probably didn't cover even like 1% of the answer.
0: So, So if I could attempt a summary there, it's your position is that Bitcoin has won the war on money because it has two qualities, which to some extent are shared by all the major blockchains, but it has in spades and that's decentralization and security. And a big part of what drives that is that the block sizes are small enough that anybody can run a node. Which means it, uh, it it resists attempts at centralization, which Ethereum does not, and for part in part for the same reason, it's also secure because anybody can run these mining operations and therefore it's just almost impossible to play whack-a-mole with Bitcoin miners uh, in a way that would not be as difficult for ethereum if say Russia and China decided to crack down on a, in their respective countries. miners are slightly different
1: from nodes in that we did see the mining industry cut off in Uh, China, and most of that has now been migrated to the US, miners are slightly easier to attack. Now, listen, you can still buy an ASIC mine and you can mine at home. Right now, it probably wouldn't be profitable to do so. Most of the mining now is in massive data centers, massive specialized data centers. And if the US wanted to clamp down on it, they probably could. Now, I just think what will happen is mining will continue to go where there's a regulatory-friendly environment and there are uh, uh, there is cheap power. So that I don't worry about too much. But in terms of the nodes, yes, the nodes themselves are- I when we talk about decentralization, one of the things I talk about is whilst all these other cryptocurrencies might be decentralized, I say that Bitcoin is meaningfully decentralized. Okay. So Ethereum is decentralized because right. there are multiple nodes. But I think it's it's more susceptible to state attack. Whereas Bitcoin isn't. It is meaningfully decentralized. So whilst Ethereum has the qualities of trustless and permissionless, I don't think itself is meaning meaningfully decentralized. Now listen, there's gonna be an ETH head who's gonna to listen to this show and they're gonna come back to you and the they're saying they're gonna wanna to talk to you and argue back. But that's just the position I've taken.
0: So it sounds like the the friction associated with maintaining the decentralized aspect of Bitcoin is just much lower than it is for, for other blockchains. I mean, Ethereum is, is decentralized in a way. and then theoretically, there'd be nothing stopping, you know five million people from booting up Ethereum nodes. But because it's so big and it's it's sort of a complicated endeavor requires a lot of compute power, a lot of memory. People just tend not to do that. And as a result, uh, Ethereum has, it's not centralized, but it has a tendency towards centralization. You, you could imagine sort of coming up with a mathematical way of measuring something like that, the, the, no, the growth in nodes or something, the, the, uh, the amount of time it requires to set one up, and using that to sort of uh, quantify
1: I think the thing is with a node is almost anybody can figure it out. There's tutorials online. They explain the equipment that you need and you can set that up at home. Most people actually probably aren't technically proficient enough to set up a a full archive or Ethereum node. That's why they tend to exist in uh, Amazon data centers. I even met somebody the other day as a Bitcoiner, but one of his jobs is to try and keep these up because they run into so many issues with the amount of data. The, the Bitcoin blockchain was designed to do one specific thing and it's been bastardized by other cryptocurrencies who've used that as a, a as a marketing exercise, this term blockchain. It's like it's like we have the internet industry and now we've got the blockchain industry. but there really isn't actually a blockchain industry. Like when I see somebody who is a blockchain expert or a blockchain educator, I, I always smell bullshit because I think blockchain was designed to do one thing. okay It was to solve the double spend problem and it did that. And I think all these other cryptocurrencies are just really uh, attempts at doing things that could be probably done better on a centralized database, probably could be. So listen, there'll be plenty of people who disagree with me, far more technical people, better at arguing the point. I think if, if you take the, uh, like the holistic view of what you want out of money, for me, Bitcoin uh, is the best, both against the fiat currencies and gold, but also against every other cryptocurrency.
0: Well, that's a that's a really compelling answer. I'd never heard anybody who's actually skeptical of the blockchain industry as such. So I was going to ask you actually about whether you think for specific use cases, and you mentioned smart contracts earlier, Ethereum makes more sense or some of these other technologies. I mean, as far as I know, you can't do that at all with, with Bitcoin. Do you, like, in your mind, is there just a bifurcation between the blockchain that solves the double-spend problem, that's Bitcoin, that's all it is, right? And then the other technologies which are playing around with the idea of centralization or making a Turing-complete computing platform that anybody can access, which is kind of the, the terminal goal of Ethereum. Like, Do you draw a hard distinction between those two? Yeah, I mean, look,
1: so people talk about smart contracts. Is this existing or coming to Bitcoin in different ways? The problem with smart contracts and true and complete platforms, you if you combine them with immutability, You have a high risk of situations where people have a serious amount of funds lost. So a smart contract can have an error in it. A smart contract can get hacked. Um, And in those situations, which has happened,
0: we're not talking
1: about millions. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in value has been lost. Uh, So I think there's also like a philosophical difference. Bitcoin is a glacier. It moves slowly. Every single time when an upgrade is made, it's it goes through a process. When these BIPs are created, they're called Bitcoin improvement protocols. It goes through a process of hard testing against what is it? Is it required? What is the social consensus? It goes through a tough build process. It goes through a process of being activated. It's, Bitcoin moves super slow because it's trying to solve one problem. And that problem is money. Whereas something like Ethereum is trying to solve a number of different things. Now, I'm not here to say, Ethereum is completely useless and nobody should use it. I'm I'm free market advocate. If people want to use Ethereum, that's fine by them. I just have no use case for it myself, but I know people like NFTs and they're having fun creating NFTs. And I I know people like uh, being able to access the capital markets within uh, these other cryptocurrencies. That's cool for them. It's not for me. I think they're full of risk. I think they're full of risk of people losing money. I think they're full of risk of scams mm-hmm. and their they're risk, there's like a high level of risk with the scalability of these platforms yeah. long term. Ethereum is going to be moving to proof of stake. And it's something like Ethereum 2, which has been on the radar for a long time. Uh, my friend Marty Bent has a Twitter thread that's been going on for years, documenting all the delays. It's just going on and on and on. And it might be, you know, it might be a very difficult migration. And if you're buying things, NFTs for millions of dollars that sit on top of this platform, you you there's a risk to your asset because the underlying protocol might not be able to support this long term. I I just care about one thing. I think good money is good for the world. I think Bitcoin is good money, and that's a place I'm happy to focus the rest of my uh, life and career on.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Um, One thing I did want to ask, and it's sort of an obligatory question, I think, is... um, you, you laid out some of the qualities that Bitcoin has um, and that other kinds of currencies don't, fiat specifically, but it occurs to me that gold has some of those as well. And I know you've had Peter Schiff on your show and he's famously a gold bug who, who has no use for Bitcoin. So could you just briefly adumbrate the case for Bitcoin and against gold for me?
1: Well, g- gold has a couple of properties that Bitcoin doesn't have. Gold is jewelry and you can you can wear it. And in yes. places like India, that is a store of value for them. They buy jewelry, and they use it to store value. Uh, gold <coughs> sorry, gold also has a long history, and, and that's, that's great. And gold has industrial uses, which is great. But in terms of usefulness as money, gold is really only good in terms of uh, being a reserve currency. Uh, and that can be as an individual or as a state. They can hold large gold reserves, which they might uh, rely upon in times of crisis. And an individual can also buy... And hold gold as a reserve currency and put it in a safety deposit box or leave it under the mattress, and that's great for them. But in terms of using it as a currency, gold runs into some problems. So you're where you are. If I wanted to, you know, send you some gold, say I want to send you a thousand dollars of gold, firstly, I have to acquire that gold, or I have to, from my gold, somehow chip off a thousand dollars, which is quite difficult. And then I have to post it to you. If you send me a Bitcoin address, then all I have to do is send a thousand dollars of Bitcoin and it's with you either within an hour if I send it on the base chain or instantly over the lightning network. So Bitcoin has the same properties that gold has as a store of value based on its scarcity. But Bitcoin has these uh, this magical property in that I can transport it to anywhere in the world instantly and at near zero cost if I'm using the lightning network. So. Bitcoin ends up destroying gold's use case. And I know Peter Schiff is a, a bear against Bitcoin and he has been for 10 years and he's been demonstrably wrong over and over again. And his arguments now are looking weaker and weaker. I think gold, did gold drop 7% this year? Then Bitcoin's up another like 300%. Yeah. Gold bugs are moving to Bitcoin. I talk to gold bugs all the time and they're swapping their allocation or increasing their allocation of Bitcoin. I think Peter Schiff, he's in that place where it's like a sunk cost for him now and he, he can't change
0: his mind. That's a shame. We'll have to have him on and discuss that with him because he's uh, he's been right in other areas of the economy. Like he's, he's well known for calling the financial crisis and a couple of other things. So he's definitely a formidable analyst, but I, I kind of tend to agree. It's just this has gone on for a while. He said a lot of things that hasn't really borne out. Like maybe the, the mega crash is coming and he'll be vindicated at last, but it's, it's looking less and less like that's the case, uh, which is good for me yeah. because I've got you know a fair bit of Bitcoin, a fair, fair bit of allocation exposure to it. Good
1: man. Well, I, I tend to reply to him occasionally now or retweet some of his posts and my comment is, which I stole from my brother, by the way, is uh, we agree on the problem. Same with Steve Hankey. We agree on the problem. We just disagree on the solution. Um, my solution is Bitcoin and his solution is gold.
0: Yeah. Uh, So to carry forward the idea of Bitcoin use cases, so you noted that gold does have industrial uses. It has uses as jewelry and it's sort of popular in part for that reason. And and that's not trivial, by the way. I mean, having that ground Mm. uh, for um, for its value helps you to, escape what they call the, the regression theorem, the Misesian regression theorem, which is something of an issue for Bitcoin and, and has caused a lot of ink to be spilled by academic economists analyzing it. But I wonder if, uh, like, like, what do you think will be some of the use cases for Bitcoin that will cause it to become more widely adopted. So at present, I think it's fair to say most people are speculating with it. And I, I, don't, I don't really know the numbers, but I don't get the impression that that many people are sending it over the Lightning Network. I mean, I'm sure people are, but it looks to me like most people are, are hodling because they think the price will go up long term, uh, which could be something of an impediment to actually using it day to day. So do you think it's mostly technological? You alluded to that earlier, that it's still just kind of complicated. Or do you think that it's because of speculation? Like, what are your thoughts?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, a really great point. Um, Bitcoin's volatile. People know it's volatile. Um, but the reason it's volatile is we are essentially re-monetizing the world with a new asset. And we don't know how to price it. And we are still super early in it where there are lots of large Bitcoin holders who are able to impact the price. But what happens in every cycle is Bitcoin becomes more distributed and the volatility drops a little bit more. But yeah, we were, we we're all speculating on what this asset is. That said, Bitcoin does have use cases. So I am a hodler. I hold my Bitcoin in deep cold storage. It is my pension. It is my savings. It is my future and my kids future. But I also still use Bitcoin for certain purposes. So, for example, I have sponsors of my podcast. Two of my sponsors pay me in Bitcoin because it's far easier to pay in Bitcoin than to get paid in uh, pounds because they're in foreign currencies and just foreign countries and just getting that money transferred across is quite difficult. So that's, that is a, a certain use case. I also do spend Bitcoin occasionally. Um, so when I was in El Salvador, um, I was there. F- I've been there five times. And I was recently there for a couple of weeks and went down to El Zonte, And there is no cash machine there. Every single place in El Zonte accepts Bitcoin on the Lightning Network. So it became a point of convenience for me, that convenience whereby... I could go and buy my cup of coffee or lunch and it'd be $5, 10 $20, whatever. And I'd just pay with my Lightning wallet and not think about it. And yes, maybe I would have preferred to hold those sats in the future and they'll be worth more, but that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm always increasing my Bitcoin holding anyway. But yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is unique. It's, you know, if you try and compare it to one thing, you can find faults with it. If you try and call it a store of value, you can find faults with it as a medium exchange. If you try and call it a medium of exchange, you can find faults with it as a store of value. It's the first true asset which is a global currency which is both a store of value and a medium of exchange which can be transferred digitally instantly and achieve final settlement i mean it's it's brilliant but what's going to happen is over time the use cases will increase a great use case right now is remittance mm-hmm. okay so right. we know the remittance industry makes tens of billions of dollars a year And we know they make that because these numbers are public and they charge a percentage on every transaction. But a lot of the remittance transactions are on transactions where people need the money the most. I spoke to a politician from Tonga, something like over 40% of their GDP is remittance. El Salvador, who I've just spoken about, that is amazing. El Salvador, where I just spoke about, I think 15% of their GDP is remittance. And every time you send money across to these countries and you're losing a percentage, That's a percentage that can go to the individuals. Now we have Bitcoin and you can do remittance in two unique new ways. You can send remittance on the Bitcoin network, especially the Lightning network, and you can achieve instant and final settlement at near zero cost. So what does this mean? If I'm sending $100, if I'm a Salvadorian working in, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the US and I want to send $100 back to my family, I can send it on the Lightning network. And like I say, it's Instant final settlement, but it opens up this idea that uh, if I need to send five dollars, I can send it across because it's easy, and also the recipient doesn't have to go to the uh, remittance company to uh, Western Union or wherever they are to go and collect it. it, they can be sat on their couch and receive it on their phone. Now, that's that's cool, but it comes with a risk where you send a hundred dollars of Bitcoin. That's uh, I mean, it's fine in El Salvador because they've uh, Bitcoin now legal tender, so you can spend it almost right. everywhere, but. That's maybe not useful in some countries that don't have it. Then you have to go do an exchange, yada, yada. But we have new services like Strike. Strike allows you to use the Bitcoin network as a payment rails. So what happens is I put, say, $100 in my Bitcoin account. Uh, sorry, my Strike account. And I want to send it to El Salvador. It uses the Bitcoin payment rails to send that money to the person at the other end and, and, and converts it to their local currency. So if I was saying sending you hundred pounds, you would re- receive the equivalent in dollars and that was sent across the Bitcoin network. So there's no, there's no cost associated with that. There's no middlemen taking a fee. And that's, that's an amazing technological advancement. So I think we're we, still in the early days, we're figuring out the use cases and as Bitcoin b- grows and continues to grow, people will start to spend it more, start to use it more in different ways.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I think possibly people just don't think about remittances, especially in the West, because we just, well, well, I mean, maybe I should speak for myself, but uh, I don't have family living abroad and I don't have to send them any money. And I think that for a lot of the people doing these analyses, they are also not in that situation and it just doesn't stand out as a big awful fucking problem they have to solve, right? That, that's worth billions of dollars a year. That's actually tons of money. I had no idea that there are places where 40% of the GDP is actually remittances sent from overseas. And so I, I think if you account for that, it, it sounds trivial at first, but when you look at how big those numbers are and how impactful it actually is to the people who are receiving that money, it actually stands out as a pretty major use case.
1: Yeah, dude, listen, sometimes the analysis from mainstream journalists is pretty poor. And I often think <laughs> they look at Bitcoin from their own point of view, yeah. and they haven't done the work. I, look, I've traveled. I've traveled around the world. I've been to probably 40 countries because of Bitcoin. I've been to you know, developed wealthy Western nations, and I've been to poor third world countries. And I've seen how it's changed people's lives. A great example is Venezuela. So I was in Venezuela two years ago. There are five currencies in Venezuela. The national currency is the bolivar which has been through multiple high, hyperinflationary events which has decimated people's uh wealth but they also have the colombian peso they have the us dollar they have bitcoin and they have this stupid cryptocurrency that maduro created called the petro but when you get there what's really interesting is mm. they will sometimes price things in the bolivar but they will ask you to pay them in the dollar yeah they will ask you because they know they know the difference between good and bad money We don't really know that because we're so used to our money working for us relatively well. So I think you have to take a global macro view of this. You have to say, where can Bitcoin be used and how can it be used? Because the use case will will be different depending on the geography and the local economic position. Lebanon is a great example. absolute collapse in their currency and the collapse in their country, the collapse in their currency... It's, le- it's turning that into a failed state. It's a failed nation now. And it's be- all because of the money printer in the, com- in the country. And it's all to do with the corruption within the government. You know, those people, though, have Bitcoin as an opportunity. So I think some of these journalists need to kind of grow a pair and really start to look at the nations which have struggling economies and struggling currencies and see why Bitcoin actually matters to them.
0: Yeah. So that's that's really fascinating that you've been on the ground. You've seen these applications in these, in these poor countries. And... I'm just, I, I guess I would be interested in getting more of those war stories. So you said you've been to El Salvador a number of different times. Uh, it's legal tender there. I have not really kept up on that story. I know that there was a huge amount of excitement around it when it first, uh, when, when the news first broke. It, it looks like maybe there was some, uh, some turbulence in the rollout. So where is that project currently? Like, like what's your opinion of, of how that's going? I mean I think it's hugely successful. Okay.
1: There are questions and challenges regarding say the Chivo wallet which is the government right, app. Right, right. Really you know really you want all bitcoin to be stored on apps outside of the government and you want those to be ones where they've can back up their private keys and yep. store their bitcoin themselves. That said, it was a bold vision which President Bukele had. He wanted them to become the first country to make bitcoin legal tender. And he faced some challenges in doing that. So he went with quite a bold uh, uh, vision. That included regulations, which meant that you were mandated to accept Bitcoin. But knowing that people might be against this, he said, well, I'll automatically convert it to local currency. Now, people say nobody should be forced to accept a currency, maybe so. But this bootstrapping within El Salvador means that you now go to Starbucks or McDonald's or Pizza Hut or Walmart in El Salvador and you can pay with Bitcoin. If he hadn't mandated it, it would never have happened. Um, there were some technical challenges on the rollout. But again, he went with a three-month deadline. That's a huge technical project to deliver in three months. But you know, despite the initial challenges, it is working people are using Bitcoin, people are spending Bitcoin, people are using the remittance service that they've created with their Chivo app and their Chivo um, ATMs to send money back to El Salvador. So I think it's a hugely successful project. I think there are areas you can question and criticize. But I think overall, it is a bold vision. And I think the country is going to benefit from it, especially as they've also bought a whole bunch of Bitcoin. And you know we had an all time high price recently. And I think we're now back over $63,000. Uh, yeah, sixty three thousand one dollars, which is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, something like that. Uh, do you are are you aware of any other countries that are undertaking similarly ambitious rollouts for making Bitcoin part of the monetary system?
1: No, but there are whispers. Yeah, there are whispers about Ukraine. There are whispers about Brazil. There are whispers around Panama. Um, I expect another one to come soon because I think the El Salvador story is just going to get better and better. Right. And the evidence coming out is going to be that this has been a successful project for them. And that's really important because one is a outlier and two is a movement. And from there, I think the domino, dominoes will continue to fall. But it, it, it requires the right leadership and the right government in power to do it because you know how politics works. When one party wants to do something, the opposition always think it's a terrible idea. Right. They'll argue against it. So anyone who's doing it is going to have to do it in light of the fact their opposition is going to argue against it. They're going to have to be very brave with it. Uh, Bukele did it perfectly. He nailed it. He took the biggest, boldest vision, and he delivered it. And that's what it's going to require for other countries. But look, if it happens or it doesn't happen, it doesn't really matter. The great thing about a Bitcoin standard is that it's an individual standard. So the gold standard, which ended in 1971, failed because the government switched it off. I think it was the UK first and then Nixon did it. But they decided to come off the gold standard. And the reason they did that is because they wanted to print more money. A Bitcoin standard is purely individual. I live on a Bitcoin standard and you might do and other people do. And it's a decentralized standard. So whether other countries do or not, it doesn't really matter. I mean, Bitcoin will succeed anyway.
0: That's a a very optimistic vision. I mean, I sincerely hope that you're right. Um, Well,
1: I, I, I... I think we're what 12 years in, coming up to 13 years in, and Bitcoin shouldn't have survived. I mean, if you look at everything it's been through, from WikiLeaks, to the Silk Road, to uh, Mt. Cox going bust, to it being a form of money that doesn't control, to everything that's happened with China banning it, and now rumors of it unbanning mining, It shouldn't have survived and it has. And it's so strong now. The network is so strong. There's over 150 million Bitcoiners worldwide. That's always increasing. Now we're at a time of monetary collapse in many countries and high inflation in others that people are starting to realize, like, where am I going to put my money? Where is a safe place? And right now, Bitcoin is the best place to put your money.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, in keeping with that theme, so we've alluded to inflation and hyperinflationary episodes several times. Uh, we recently had a a podcast guest on to talk about inflation and whether or not they think it's transitory. You have uh, uh, Jack from Twitter saying that hyperinflation is here. Most of the monetary economists I know have blasted him for that and said, no, it's not. Where do you come down on that? I mean, do you think that we are on the precipice of hyperinflation? Do you think this is sort of a transitory episode owing to money printing during COVID-19? Like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I'm not an economist, so anything I say would be a guess at best. But I did Before this, I was interviewing Lynn Alden, who I think is the best macroeconomic thinker there is. And I asked her the same question. And she said, hyperinflation is regarded as month on month 50% inflation. And so will the US dollar hit month on month 50% inflation? I'm not sure. She's not sure. But one of the points she made to me, it's like, it doesn't really matter I mean, of course, it matters. If we have hyperinflation, it's, it will be dreadful. We, you know, any of us can read when money dies. What happened in the Weimar Republic? Yep. Anyone can look at what happened has happened in Venezuela and Zimbabwe. But either way, inflation is here and it's getting higher. And even if it's transitory, through that transitory period, we all need to have a way to protect ourselves. Yeah, you know, this could be a decade of high inflation because there is a lot of global debt that needs paying off, and a good way to pay off debt. For governments is inflation, right? That's the best way they can pay off their debt. So either way, the people who are going to be paying that off are the bondholders and the peasants, or <laughs> the people who are relying on their pensions for when they retire, they are going to be paying off the mistakes of irresponsible economic policy from governments. So we might have hyperinflation. If not, we might still have high inflation. And if it's 5 10 15%, even if it's quoted at 5%, and we know it's 15%, it can affect anyone. So we all need to prepare for what's happening in the economy and be able to react to it. And uh, where can you put money? Hard assets, gold, property, Bitcoin.
0: So I realize that you're you're not a monetary economist. So maybe it's a little unfair of me to ask you a question that's kind of detailed like this. But I just wanted to get your off-the-cuff thoughts. So there are a number of different uh, strains of economics that view inflation as either Helping to prepare, uh, helping to propel a growing economy, or is just otherwise not that big of a problem. And this actually comes in a number of different flavors. You've got, you know, obviously the Stephanie Keltons of the world, the monetary theorists, who say, no, I mean, money just is what the government says it is. There's absolutely no problem with uh, printing money as long as you keep the inflation under control. But you also have relatively free market sorts like Larry White and George Selgin. Oh no, no, I'm sorry, I I don't want to impugn them. I'm actually thinking of uh, Larry Sumner's, who's a market monetarist, and he's that you should have a a rule based central bank that targets about two percent inflation and sort of coordinates that across the economy. It seems like you're sort of, number one, skeptical of that story. And also, you like the fact that Bitcoin is ultimately a deflationary currency. So would you care to weigh in on that? I'll do my best. I'm not a
1: monetary (laughs) uh, economist. Uh, You know, just so your listeners know, in terms of my podcast, the reason I think it's done well is like I'm kind of dumb. I'm a bit of a moron. So I just like, I like asking moron questions. People always write to me and they're like, oh, I love your show because you ask the questions that I want answered and I appreciate that. It's like, I am just I just want answers because I don't understand all this stuff. Like yeah. this podcast was set up as a hobby and I find myself in this position. But what I will say is that what is true is that fiat currencies are still an experiment. You know, we've we've never had a fiat currency last, I think more than 90 years. They've all collapsed in the end. And I think it comes down to the incentives, and there's two areas there. There's the incentives of government to try and keep the economy going. Nobody wants to be the president or prime minister who reigns during uh, a, a massive economic crash, because their time in history be, history will be regarded as a, va- a failure. So the, the four, five-year cycle of presidents and prime ministers Puts them in a position where I think they just want to kick the can down the road. Right. Being, you know, fiscally frugal sometimes isn't the best thing to do. So look, let's print money. Let's kick the can down the road. So I think that's a problem. I also think the Cantillion effect, something mm-hmm. I've learning about recently, that as the money printer goes, brr, mm-hmm. then that money tends to go towards. Uh, it tends to filter nearest the people. To the printer right so it, it creates a situation whereby the the rich stay rich but the poor get poorer. it increases the wealth gap and you tend to see that with a destruction of the middle class and we're seeing that now you, know, you see these stories on twitter where somebody will tell a story that they earn i don't know maybe they earn two hundred thousand dollars a year them and their partner and they work out all their outgoings medical food fuel housing and they've got nothing left at the end of it yeah and so I think that's, a, that's another important point. And I also just don't particularly like the idea of central banking, which is a few guys in a room making decisions for the benefit of the government. And I don't like it because <coughs> I, think, I don't think top-down economics works for everyone. But I like the idea of bo- bottom-up economics. I like the idea of here is a here is the financial system, here are the rules. There's 21 million coins. Every four years, that halves. You play by those rules, and you go and figure out how it works for you. That's, that's what I like. But I think the problem we have is government running money. When the, the U.S. was uh, founded, the, there was the idea of separation of uh, uh, church and state. I think there should be a separation of uh, money and state next. I think money should be free. And that has issues that come with it. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. And that has challenges. But for me, it's the the fiat system is a failed system that has led to poverty, uh, abuse, uh, war. Uh, I mean, it, it's fundamentally finance war. I mean, get, Nixon came off the gold standard to fund the Vietnam War. And and you've got to ask, why did the Iraq war happen? We know it wasn't because of ma- weapons of mass destruction. But we do know that Saddam Hussein wanted to move oil to be priced in euros rather than the petrodollar. Now, the incentives aren't, are very strange when you allow government, huge governments to control money. So I... I support the idea of moving to a Bitcoin standard and a form of money that isn't controlled by anyone else. I don't like this. Yeah, Stephanie Kelton, I've had her on. I've talked to her about MMT. And oh, did like, you? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I had her on, and she talks about you can print money as long as you can keep inflation under control. Well, they they can't keep inflation under control. Inflation is out of control at the moment. Uh, I mean, we're quite lucky in the UK at 3.2% and the, and the US at... Uh, 5.4%. Look look what's what the rate is now in Turkey or look at what the rate is now in Argentina. Um so yeah, you it's all well and good if you can keep it under control, but they can't keep it under control. And even two percent inflation, okay, even two percent inflation itself uh is uh a hidden tax on your income. So Yeah, people worry about deflationary environments because in deflationary environments, maybe people spend less. Well, maybe we need to stop spending money on stupid shit we don't need. Maybe we need to to stop creating these businesses such as, uh, I don't know, these fast fashion retail businesses where we are destroying the environment and creating useless cheap clothing that people can wear a couple of times and throw away. Maybe we need an economy which is built on creating good products and strong products and, and a healthy economy. I mean, I don't
0: know, dude. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the the more provocative um, quotes from Ayn Rand is that she, she advocated for a separation of economics and state for the same reason that there was a separation between church and state. And I, I agree with you that people just tend to overestimate the ability of bureaucrats to twiddle knobs to a degree that is just breathtaking. It's like, okay, so if you can target exactly the inflation you want, maybe it will work, but no one can. you know. I mean, that's like saying I'm going to keep my heart rate at exactly this this particular rate and not have it vary at all. Well, I mean, I can hit a range maybe if I'm paying careful attention to it, but the economy is organic and has many moving parts and responds to your attempts to control it. It's a type 2 complex system, and therefore – it's just a fantasy to think that you were going to be able to keep this on track while getting all the salubrious benefits of an inflationary regime without having a crash you know, on the other side. And I think to your point about incentives, you're absolutely right. So when the government can print money and controls the money supply through a fiat system, they have an incentive to expand that because that increases tax receipts, which makes their debt cheaper on down the road. And also they just have a tendency to want to extract more resources out of the private sector because you if you can pay for it in dollars that you printed, why wouldn't you? Do you know what I think you should talk to about this? You should talk to Jeff Booth. Jeff Booth.
1: Yeah, he's a great guy. I can introduce you to him. He'll come on your show and talk to you about this. He He's a much better guy than I am to talk about this.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. And, and Lynn, Lynn Ald or Lynn Alden?
1: Lynn, Lynn Alden. She's also amazing. I, I Follow her on Twitter. I think I, think I do follow her
0: on Twitter, but uh, we I, we may have even reached out to her at one point. She's been on my radar, and I've wanted to talk to her, but now she'll she'll move. She's got the Peter McCormick bump up to the top uh, of, of my good. I mean, I get them
1: on my show because these are the kind of people who understand this better than I am. I'm just good at asking dumb questions.
0: <laughs> hey, I, I tell you what, that's a, that's a superpower more so than people realize is just being able to ask those questions and being willing to do it over and over again. You can learn all kinds of stuff that, uh, that you people know what? Th- assume they already know and they don't.
1: My favorite tweet I ever sent was uh, after I was getting some hate about my podcast with people saying, you're a you know, fucking idiot, shut up. And <laughs> I said, listen, there are three types of interview podcasts. There is a smart person and a smart person. So perhaps you have someone like Eric Weinstein interviewing Peter Thiel. And then you have a moron and a smart smart person, which is someone like Rogan interviewing Eric Weinstein. And then you have a moron and a moron, which is someone like Rogan interviewing Bill Burr. And they're all different. (laughs) The moron and the moron is just fun. The moron and the smart person is like a fun person trying to get you through serious topics and help other morons understand it. And a smart person, a smart person is two people just going toe to toe with uh, smart subjects. Uh, I actually think you flipped it this way. You've done a smart person and a moron, which is complicated <laughs> because now you're asking me tough questions. I've got no idea
0: what the fuck to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a lot of fun. Sm- sm- smart and dumb can also be a lot of fun, you know, if if, if everybody's yeah. asking questions in good faith, I think. Um, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you, is, given that you are bullish uh, Bitcoin long term, you noted that it has survived all of these uh, vicissitudes over the past uh, what, decade or decade and a half, however long it's been. What are, if any, are the existential risks to Bitcoin? Like if you woke up, if you went into a coma today, I woke you up in six months and said, Peter, Bitcoin's gone. Like, what would you think had happened? Gosh,
1: good question. Uh, well, I think government might have instigated uh, sound economic policy and sound money oh. and stop the money printer. <laughs> That's a good one, if, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the need for Bitcoin, one of the needs for Bitcoin is that, uh, and I'm stealing that off a guy called Safety Moose who wrote the Bitcoin standard. Yeah, he's also on my list. Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, coordinated global regulatory action would definitely financially harm Bitcoin. There would you would see a huge sell-off, and if you see a huge sell-off, then you would see a reduction in security because the miners would be paying mine mine uh, be paying being paid less. That's a, an issue. Um, thermonuclear war could be an issue. Yeah, um, but I. I think these are massive outliers. I, I I think we're over the tipping point now. Like Bitcoin is here and is established. Uh, the U.S. has just the SEC has just approved Bitcoin futures, which is a huge signal that yeah. they're not going to ban Bitcoin. If if they're not going to ban it, then most of the Western world isn't going to ban it. Um, the network is huge now. It's uh, the security is huge on Bitcoin, and it's maturing. People are starting to understand it. Yeah, before. Four years ago, when I was talking about Bitcoin on my Facebook, I was like, I knew it went into that bucket of veganism and uh, CrossFit. <laughs> There's like three categories of, like, you're one of those people. And I've continued to talk about it. And it's no longer embarrassing. I think it's, if anything, it's embarrassing not to have taken the time to look at this. You know, Bitcoin is now at $63,000. It will go over $100,000. It will continue on a long enough time frame. It always goes up. It always goes up in value yeah. because fiat currencies always print. So I think now is time for people to kind of like, if you've not spent the time, spent five minutes looking at Bitcoin, if you have not bought yourself like $100 of Bitcoin, then really, as your currencies collapse, and Bitcoin continues to increase in value, then you have no real argument against it. Because you know, people talk about Bitcoin mass adoption, but we have mass awareness nobody yeah. has not heard of right you'd right. have to be in you'd have to be some tribe in the brazilian rainforest not to have heard of bitcoin right now everyone's heard of it it is here it's not going away you need to do the work you need to understand what the volatility is you need to understand why the price keeps going up you know the people who didn't buy at a thousand dollars and then didn't buy at twenty thousand and now not buying at 63 you've got to ask why and they have to ask themselves why
0: yeah i um I completely agree. I, I think that Bitcoin, I guess, has arrived in a way. Maybe it arrived a long time ago. But for me, the moment when I realized that we, we've we achieved a really significant degree of saturation is that I, I got a new job at a company called Elementus in New York. And I called my grandmother to tell her about it. And I told her it was a blockchain company. And she goes, oh, is is that like Bitcoin? you know, Like like, like my 80 year old grandmother who cannot operate her printer had heard of Bitcoin. And I thought, yeah, this this tech is it's achieved mindshare for sure. Yeah,
1: look, dude, it's everywhere now. And. when companies are holding it within their reserves and countries are making it legal tender and you can trade futures on the new york stock exchange uh the 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 ecosystem is huge now um it's not going away and, and the reason it keeps going up in value it is the best form of money it's the best place to keep your money long term and so look i'm overexposed. I am irresponsibly long Bitcoin, but really I've done the work. I've spent years studying this. I've got to speak to all the best minds and I'm in.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Do you have any closing thoughts for us?
1: No, man. Just to say thank you for asking me on. It's really, really nice to chat to you. If I'm ever over Denver way, I'll let you know. We can go and have a beer and we can talk about Bitcoin.
0: Please do. Yeah. So Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, man.